were at, the chief priests and the scribes were on the search for a way to take Jesus by trickery and have him killed. And a woman by the name of Mary, we looked at, decided to display her love to Jesus by taking this oil called spikenard, which was very costly. It was worth like three years' wages, and she poured it over the head of Jesus. And this was a way that she could honor him that no one else could because no one else had this. And she honored him like they would kings in that day. She anointed him with oil. And then all over the Old Testament, you see these prophets going to pick out the king and they would pour this very expensive oil over uh, the kings of those days. But Jesus comes as a reigning king, as the king that would actually be the fulfillment of all that God had told the nation of Israel. This is going to be your king. Now, in his first coming, he didn't come to be king. He came to deal with the, the division between God and man, the sin problem. But when he comes again, he will come as a conquering king. So as he did that, and as she worshipped him this way, there was a, a little bit of a mishap because uh, some of the disciples got a little upset with this extravagant display of love. They were upset. And then we find out in John chapter 12 that it was actually a man by the name of Judas. Probably the reason that nobody names their kids Judas anymore is this one guy. And uh, so you have Judas, and uh, apparently he was upset, but it wasn't for the reason that he said. He said, you know, all the money that if we'd have sold this perfume, we could have paid and, and had all kinds of money to help out the poor. Well, this was just some sort of, he was just trying to deceive, because really, we find out from John chapter 12, verse 6, it says that this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. So very simply put, he was just really upset because he was going to steal that money. She just sold that, put all the money in Jesus's treasury or his disciples' treasury. They had a little tithe box, as it were, that they carried with them. They used that money as God led. Well, he was stealing from that box. So if she just sold that, he'd have had a pretty good hefty sum he could have taken from them. So we really didn't care about anybody else. So from this point on, and John or in Mark chapter 14, verse 10, it says, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, he went to the chief priests to betray him to them, and when they heard it, they were glad. Now remember, they were looking for a way that they might take him by trickery and have him put to death. They were no longer just trying to get him out of there. They were trying to kill him. And uh, because Judas came along, they were glad, and they promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray them. Now we find out a little bit something about Judas here, not just that he was a thief, but oftentimes you look at people and you say, well, why did they steal that? Or why did they kill so-and-so? Because we live in a society where you, you turn on the TV and you hear all these crimes. Why did that take place? Well, with Judas here, we get a little insight. It says that he sought how he might conveniently betray Jesus. Now, I don't know about you guys, but as a believer now, I go, there's no convenient way to betray Jesus. It may work out for me in the short run, but in the long run, it's not going to work out well because he gets the final judgment. So Judas, what I noticed here, and I'm a captain of the obvious, as Mike Harrison always says, he sought how he might conveniently betray Jesus. So Judas was a man who sought after the convenient things in life. And we do. We like things right here, right now. We want what we want, and we want it now. And if you've ever ran around kids, they're just kind of an amplification of that. No, there's no patience. You don't have to teach kids impatience. They're always impatient. But Judas was a man of convenience. And when Jesus originally came to him, he called Judas to follow him. 
Now, we don't have any record of what exactly he said, but it seems like he's been following him for three years, so his answer was yes, right? His outward answer was, yes, I will follow you. But oftentimes what people do is they say, well, Jesus wants to say, they, they have a wrong idea about what Jesus came to do. And that's unfortunate because he's very clear in Scripture, but many people don't have an idea why he came. But he came to bind up the brokenhearted. He came to set captives free. He came to heal the blind and the sick and the lame. So, but many people take that and they go, oh, well, he's going to heal me financially. He's going to provide millions of dollars so I can never be uncomfortable again. Well, I just taught a passage yesterday that talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 or 2, where it says that God is the God of all comfort. But many people take that word comfort and they say, hey, that God's the one that wants to give me the best recliner in the world. He wants to give me the biggest truck, the biggest boat. He wants to give me a mansion. But comfort, the word there, means to bind us together, to make us stronger than we once were. To take us through trials, not to take us around them. And so Judas had this idea of what he might gain by following Jesus. People were calling him Messiah. So, of course, Judas might have an idea like, hey, this guy's going to be the king one day. I want to be on his good side. I want to be able to be like you know, one of his doorkeepers. I'll make a bunch of money and get to live in the castle. You know, uh, perhaps he would need someone to count money for him. You know, if he's going to be a king, he's going to have a big treasury. I can be his money counter, and I can steal from that one too. You know, or perhaps he would need someone to be a governor or a ruler over one of his many provinces, right? If we all knew the guy that was running for president, we want to be on his good side. We, what we could get out of it. Not just his friendship, but we want to get some benefits. Well, the benefits that Jesus was offering his disciples seems like they weren't really adding up to what Judas was asking for. Judas wanted money. Judas wanted power. He wanted prominence. And Jesus comes along, and as he walks with them for three years, he's like, when's this kingdom coming? Like, why aren't, why aren't we doing well yet? This is not uh, what I thought it was going to be. I thought we were going towards the, the White House. You know, I thought we were going to be in Mansion Row. I thought we wanted to be like the rulers of this day. And Judas continues to see that Jesus' expectation and his are not lining up. And so Jesus, Judas has this problem. He can either stick around and see how it works out and be disappointed because his expectations haven't changed, or he can ditch Jesus and go and get what he really wants, which is money. And so for the love of money, he gives up eternity. He betrays the one who would in fact, make him right with God. And oftentimes people do that. They, they go, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to become a Christian and I'm going to walk with them and I'm going to do all the things I need to do. And then at one point they get upset because they're like, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Why hasn't he fixed my marriage? Why hasn't he fixed this thing or that? Why hasn't he made everything perfect? Well, God didn't say, hey, I would fix all your problems. He said, I would give you peace while you're going through your problems. I would teach you to get through them by my power, I would give you joy in the midst of hard times. He gives us joy in the midst of good times too. But it's not always peachy keen. So Judas finds this out. He gets upset. And, uh, but what we find out is that Jesus is not a God of, of, uh, of the necessarily prosperous. He would, what he found out about Jesus was that he wasn't the conquering king that he wanted to serve. He would not offer worldly pleasures that Judas wanted to gain. Instead, Jesus was a leader to the poor. He was a healer of the blind, the deaf, 
the lame. There's a verse in Corinthians that said God uses the, the things that the world calls abased or humble to confound those that are great and proud and wise in the world, world's eyes. And I think that's interesting because there was a time at which I looked at my relationship with God and I really got to a spot where it's like, they don't know what I know. If they knew what I know, then they'd be something. But then I read a verse in Corinthians that said that God uses the humble things, the abased things to confound the wise. He doesn't use the proud. He doesn't use the worldly wise. He doesn't use those that think that they're great. He uses those that knows that they're not. And it was like, wow, that's a humbling thing. He doesn't expect me to be perfect. He expects me to be obedient and faithful, to show up. And so uh, Judas finds out that Jesus was not what he expected. And so from this point on, he seeks a way where he can conveniently, there's that word again, betray Jesus. He doesn't even want to betray Jesus where Jesus knows that it was him. He's trying to hide it, as if you can hide something from God, right? So we'll see later how that goes. But in the meantime, what's going on in the... In the uh, city of Jerusalem is that they're gathering for the feast of Passover. So all of them are gathering, any Jew who's anybody, anybody who's religious, they're gathering together for the Passover feast. And this is something that, this was the first feast that was set up by God as they were coming out of the nation of, excuse me, as they were exiting, I was going to say the nation of Exodus, as they were exiting Egypt. And so it says there in verse 12, on the first day of unleavened bread, which is the feast of Passover, when they killed or they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. So they're asking, okay, where do you want us to go so that we can have Passover? We're going to celebrate this together. It's a known fact by now. They've been with them for three years. This wasn't just some friend anymore. This was somebody that they were always with. So they were asking him, okay, it's time for Passover. We've celebrated every, all these three years. Although we don't have a record of that, we know that they did. So where do you want us to go? Because remember, their headquarters is to the north, up by the Sea of Galilee, in a region called uh, Capernaum. And it was at Peter's mother-in-law's house. So while they're up there, they've traveled this far south to Jerusalem. And uh, I don't remember how many miles it is, but it's basically, it's not like they can just travel up there real quick and have a place to eat Passover. When you have Passover, you do it in Jerusalem. So they had been down here for Passover. And when they go into town, he's saying, okay, where do we want to do this? Well, in that culture, they would do this and they would gather as a group. They had different groups that would gather. Sometimes it was a family gathering. Sometimes it was a group of disciples under one rabbi. So they would go to this house and he said, I want you to go into town. And when you go into town, you're going to see a man with a pitcher. It's like, Really? You're not going to give me what street. You're not going to give me an intersection. That's how we give directions. But God goes, I know how this event is going to unfold. So when you walk into town, you're going to see this guy. And he's going to be carrying a pitcher of water. That's pretty good, by the way. 
you know, to predict what's going to go on. He's showing them, he has foreknowledge of what they're going to see when they go into town. He's showing his deity, his being God. He's omniscient. That's just a really expensive word that means he's all-knowing. He knows everything. And so when they walk into town, basically, uh, they walk into town saying, you know, okay, where's this guy with the pitcher? Now we think, okay, they're in a society where they don't have running water, so they all got pitchers. Anybody who's anybody needs water during the day, right? So they go to the well and they take a pitcher and they fill it up. But what he has said is, you're going to see a man who has a pitcher. Now that would raise a red flag because it'd be like, wait a minute, guys don't carry pitchers. Guys carry animal skins. Now to us, that's weird. It's like, what do you mean he's got an animal skin? But we talked about way long ago when he was talking about wine skins that they would make it out of an animal. They would skin the animal and then they would sew the animal skins together kind of in a, a bag form. They'd leave the legs on there and they'd sew the two together and it would kind of look weird. But to get as much capacity, they'd basically make a homemade canteen and they would fill it with water. And that's what men would carry. But the women would carry a pitcher of water. They would probably be gathering water at the well to go back to the house and do preparations for a meal or to wash the children or whatever might take place. She was taking care of the home. So she would have this large pitcher. So if they know they're going to walk into the city of Jerusalem and see a man carrying a pitcher, they're like, he's going to stand out like a sore thumb because it's not common. So he's not just giving them like, hey, find a guy with a pitcher. You're going to see somebody and it's going to be a guy carrying a pitcher. So they're going, okay. So we'll see the guy with the pitcher, then what? And he says, follow that guy until he goes into a house. When he goes into a house, wherever it is, go in that house and talk to the master of the house. Talk to the guy that owns the house. So when you talk to him, say, hey, where is the guest room where we may eat Passover? Now in our culture, you wouldn't just say, hey, uh, I just saw you walk into that house. Can we use one of the rooms and have a meal? That'd be awkward, right? We'd be like, we, even people we know, we wouldn't do that to because we'd feel kind of uncomfortable. Like, hey, I didn't mean to invite myself over, but here I am. You know? So what he's doing is he's saying, go into this house. Now, a cultural note, and I think it's important, is during the time of Passover, basically the city would swell, kind of like small towns do when a big festival's in town. People come out of the woodworks and they fill the streets. And so during that time, there were so many people that didn't live in Jerusalem that were looking for a place to celebrate Passover. So they would go to Jerusalem, they would find a home, and they would ask, hey, can we come in and use one of your rooms? Well, we don't understand it, but in that culture, in Eastern culture, they're very hospitable. To take a stranger into your home was, they would take care of the strangers better than they would their own people in their own home that lived there. So they were very spent on making sure that those who they invited to their home had good hospitality. It was one of the things that they're known for. So they would invite them in and say, hey, you know, use this room or, hey, this is all we got left. But what I wanted to note is that when he says, um, wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where's the guest room in which we may eat the Passover? The word for guest room is actually a word that kind of translates to our world as like a mudroom. Like the room that you come into in the house and that's where you keep the muddy boots, the snow suits during snowstorms, and it's like where you let everything drip dry before you go back out and get them dirty again. And in our house, we always had a mudroom down in the basement. We had like a split foyer house. You'd walk in the bottom door, 
there was a concrete area and you just kind of leave your muddy boots there so you didn't track them through the house. Now, not every house has that, but this is the word he's using. Another example of what this word would mean would actually be like a hallway in between two rooms. So Jesus, when he came in, he wasn't saying, hey, can we have the best room in the house? He was telling him, go, go find a room that we can use. But it's also the same word that's used for what they were looking for in order for Jesus to be born. Remember, they didn't, there was no room in the inns for them to have baby Jesus. So he was looking for, a, his parents were looking just for any room. Like, give us a room that's warm so we can have this baby. They didn't say, give us the Hilton. They didn't say, give us your bedroom. They just said, give us a place. We just need a place. Jesus wasn't looking for, you know, the, the highest rent place on the district. He just needed a room. He was humble. And in the same way, since he was born in some of the most humble beginnings, he's looking for a humble place to have his last meal. Because that's what we find out is going to be. He's going to give them the last meal, this Passover meal. They were going to remember him because it was the last time they gathered and ate food. Now, to eat food in that culture was more than just like, hey, we're sitting at Subway and we're going to have a meal. Hey, you over there, you just happen to be sitting next to me. It was more intentional because in that culture, to eat with someone meant to have fellowship with them, intimate fellowship. It was the only things you, you would only do this with people that you were close friends with. And I like that because that's kind of the way I think about it too. Every time we have somebody over to the house or I eat a meal with somebody, to me it's way more than just food. Because the kingdom of God is not about food and, and drink. It's, it's about love and the Holy Spirit. It's about the Lord's work, His unity in us. And it's interesting to me because oftentimes it just becomes like, hey, let's eat a quick meal. I remember growing up, we would have a meal and we'd have Wheel of Fortune on. Nothing wrong with that. Wheel of Fortune is a great show. But we wouldn't talk about what happened during our day. And that's one of the, some of the best conversations that my wife and I have is we will just eat food and kind of, hey, how did your day go? And whether it was good or bad, we get to be with each other and talk about it. But in that day, they would experience a meal and they would partake of, they would break a piece of bread and they would eat it together. Symbolizing basically that this piece of bread came from one and we're both partaking of the particles that make up this piece of bread. So basically what we're eating, both of us together, is becoming part of our body because you are what you eat kind of thing. And so basically it'd be kind of like those, you ever see an old Western movie where you got an Indian chief and some cowboy that was out there and they become blood brothers? They put a cut in their hand and the other one cuts his hand just in the flesh and then they put them together and they say, we're now blood brothers. Same idea. That's the way they looked at it with food. It was more than just a meal. It was, we're joining ourselves together to enjoy a meal and this means that we're, we're more than just some friend. And so in that culture, to have a meal was way more than what we experience. So anyway... After his disciples had found this room, they went into town. It says, verse 16, So his disciples, hearing his instructions, they went out, they came into the city, and they found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. Mark doesn't really go into the details a whole lot. He just says, just as he told them it would happen, it did. And then they went into that room and they prepared the Passover. I think oftentimes we overcomplicate God's will for our lives when we try to discern between the difference of you know, what does God want for me? And sometimes it's just as simple as, hey, you know, read my word and what I show you that morning, just be obedient to that. Don't try to be obedient to the whole thing at once. It's impossible. Just, 
Just listen for his voice today. Hear what he has to say to you. Maybe it's something as simple as love thy neighbor. And maybe you go to work and there's this guy there. And it's like, well, that's my neighbor, but whew, him? And just do that and you'll be blessed, even if they don't receive it. You know, but we overcomplicate it and we go, I wonder what God has for me today. Is there going to be a miraculous sign? No. Sometimes it's just, hey, go into town. There's going to be a guy with a, a, a pitcher. He's going to take you to a house. And then ask that guy to use his room. And what it says there is that then, verse 15, he will show you a large upper room that's furnished and prepared. There is where I want you to make ready. So Jesus asked for the humble place. And the guy that he goes to the master of the house, he goes, you, you're going to ask for the humble place, but he's going to give you the best room in the house. He's going to give you the upstairs. It'll be a place where nobody's going to be walking through. It won't be a hallway or a mudroom. We'll be able to eat our meal. We'll be able to enjoy it alone. And during that time is when Jesus takes the opportunity to teach his disciples some of the most base things, some of the simplest pieces of what it means to be his disciples, one of which is partaking in a meal. And another of which is he's going to give them the Lord's Supper for the first time, alone in the upper room and waiting. And what's interesting to me is that later, after Jesus dies, is crucified, buried, dead, rises on the third day, after his ascension in the book of Acts, he tells them, he says, I want you to go and wait. I want you to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And what they do is they go back to this place where they had this, this meal. They go back to the same house they go to the upper room and they wait upon the Lord. They pray. They fast. They wait for God to send His Holy Spirit. And after that point is when He sends the Spirit. And that next day, or maybe that day, Peter goes and he preaches and 5,000 people are saved. So this is kind of a spot where they kind of make their headquarters in Jerusalem to be able to fellowship with one another. So His disciples went out, verse 16, and came into the city and they found it just as He had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. And then verse 17 says, In the evening he came with the twelve. Now we need to remember because he didn't send all twelve disciples to go find this place. Seems as if he just sent two people in. He always sends them by twos. He sends them in to prepare for the Passover. And as they go in there, they get it all ready. And then later is when Jesus brings the rest of them into town. So they can practice Passover as well. Verse 18 says, Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one by one, Is it I? And another one said, Is it I? And he answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man, indeed, goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. <laughs> to have Jesus say that about you is a pretty striking thing. Seems really harsh. But over and over again, if you'll remember with me, Jesus has been teaching his disciples that his purpose for being born and living on this earth was to die. The whole reason he came to us was so that he could die. Get die unless you first live. So he showed what it meant to really live in order to die. And the interesting thing is he keeps telling his disciples and they're still in denial about it. Now, I'm not going to pick on them because I would have been too. He's teaching them all these things. He's becoming friends with them. 
He's feeding 5,000 people at a time. He's healing the sick, the lame, the blind. They all thought he was going to be the Messiah, and they really were thinking, this guy's going to be the next king. I mean, who wouldn't want a king that could heal people? Who wouldn't want a king that said, love thy neighbor as thyself? Who wouldn't want a king that would be willing to be your friend? He was a people's person. He was humble. He hung out with the people no one would hang out with. That's the kind of king we want, right? We don't want some guy that sits in an ivory tower and goes, you know, I really can't relate to what you have going on. We want a king who can say, hey, I know what they're going through. We need to make this happen. But Jesus came to die. It was no new teaching, but for many of them who were still in denial of this truth, it was still hard to believe that this was what he came to do. And now Jesus reveals a truth to them that is even harder to swallow. It's one thing to know your Savior is going to die. It's a whole other thing when he starts kind of revealing little hints at who it is that's going to betray him. He says, uh, he begins to reveal to them the one that will betray him. And it just so happens to be one of the men they knew who had been with them for the last three years. Somebody they'd been eating with. Somebody they'd been walking with along the way. Someone that was involved in everything they'd been doing for the last three years. I don't know about you guys, but if I'd spent three years with 12 guys, I'd think that I knew them. Right? I mean, you get to spend time with people, that's how you get to know them. But some people you can spend a lifetime with, and then they'll do something, you're like, where did that come from? And so, one of the things about loving people and being that close to them, like Jesus and the disciples were, is that they will let you down. They might even betray you. But what I want to point out is that even though Jesus knew the whole time, because remember we just talked about he's omniscient, he knew the whole time that one of them was going to betray him. And he still picked him to follow. Now it had to be that way, because that's how God's plan unfolded. But I never see anything in Scripture about Jesus treating him any different. Jesus never taught or or treated Judas any different than the other disciples. He loved him. He loved him. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if I knew ahead of time, if I had foreknowledge like God does, and knew that one of the 12 people I was spending all my time with, spending my life investing in, was going to betray me to the point of my death, I don't think I would have had that kind of courage to treat them lovingly or gracefully. But that's what God calls us to do. He calls us to love people, and then when they betray us, when they say things to us that are basically feel like murder or a dagger, he says, love them anyway. And then we're like, Lord, but why? And he goes, because I did. That's how I loved you. You know, because oftentimes we go, that guy has blasphemed and got, you know, I don't think God can save that person. Or why would God forgive that person? I can't. And then we realize that God's love is so much further than anything we can experience because he does. He loves us in that while we were still sinning against him, he died for us. It's like, you know what? You're not listening to me, but I'll die for you right now. And I will allow that free grace, that gift of being made right with me to be given to you, even though you were sinning against me, even though you were betraying me. And that's the kind of love that I think I'll spend my entire life trying to wrap my mind around because it's not something that we have naturally to give. It's not. It's something that we have to learn. And it's something that God has to learn and, and show through us. So I went on along with that one long enough. 
But now he's explaining to them that it's going to be one of these guys here. And each one of the disciples says, Lord, is it, is it me? Am I going to betray you? I mean, when there's only 12, everybody in the room's going, is it going to be me? Is it going to be? And they kind of go around the table. But there was one in there that said it just to, to blend in, I guess. Because he knew by that point, he'd already decided, hey, I'm going to get 30 pieces of silver out of this bad boy. This guy's going down. I'm tired of him. So then to save face, he kind of says, is it me? You know, like, you know, like if the dog eats something off the floor and, you know, the dog gets into something and, and it's obvious, you know, you ever have a dog gets into the trash and you walk in and they're like, what? I, this was the cat. You know, they, they kind of look at you like you're dumb. It's like, look, you're the only one that tall. None of us like to chew on toilet paper or whatever's in the trash. So we know it was you. You know, and he thinks he can pull the wool over the shepherd's eyes, but he can't. But on another note, and this will be our last note, but it's kind of a long one. It's interesting to see that according to all the gospel accounts, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John on this same section of verses we're looking at tonight, there's no mention of there being a, a lamb that they ate at, the, at, the, at this meal that he's giving his disciples. Which is interesting because the whole point of the Passover meal was that they would take and they would remember back to when they began as a nation when God miraculously brought them out of Egypt. After all the plagues that God put on those people, on, on the Egyptians, God said, let my people go. And they said, no. He said, okay, hailstones. God said, let my people go. Okay, no. Uh, frogs. He plagued them with blood in the river. He plagued them with all these crazy things. And then his final straw, he said, Pharaoh, if you don't let my people go, I'm going to murder and kill each one of your firstborn in all the land. And Pharaoh listened and he hardened his heart and he said, no. So on that night, in preparation for Passover, because this was going to be the first Passover meal, he said, well, here's what I want you to do, Israelites. All those who trust in the Lord, I want you to take, I want you to find a spotless and a blemishless, a clean, perfect lamb, the best you got. That's what I want. I want you to kill that lamb. I want you to sacrifice it to the Lord. And I want you to take the blood, drain it out of the animal, because they were never to eat the blood. The life is in the blood. So take that blood, and I want you to spread it over your doorposts on your house as a sign that you trust me. And because of that blood... When the angel of death passes through the camp of Egypt and passes over all the households in Egypt, he'll pass over the ones that have the blood on the doorposts. Now this is by faith, right? It's not something. If I heard somebody tell me, hey, if you put blood on your door, your kid will be good. I'd be like, I hope so, but who knows? But he said, just trust me in this. Anybody that doesn't have the blood on the doorposts, they're going to lose their firstborn. Just the way God was dealing with them. And so God decided that's what he would do. And he told the Israelites ahead of time, if you put the blood over, now the Israelites were not the only ones that would be affected by this. If anybody else that heard this news would trust in the blood of that lamb, they could be saved too. They, they wouldn't lose their firstborn. Even then, God's plan was for more than just the Israelites. But then he said, I want you to eat of that lamb. I want you to eat the meat from that lamb. And when they ate of that lamb, whatever was left, because there's always leftovers, there just is. They weren't going to microwave them the next day. They were going to take the, the meat that was left, and they were supposed to burn it 
as the sacrifice because the lamb had to be completely consumed before daylight. And then they were supposed to make preparations of bread. Get rid of all the leaven, because leaven is always a picture of sin in the Bible. Leaven is what makes the bread rise. Don't have any leaven. I want you to take, make the bread. No leaven. I want it just to be flat bread. They weren't health conscious. That was just so it wouldn't go bad as quick. And then I want you to take all that bread with you and be prepared because in the morning, in the middle of the night, we're going to flee from Egypt. And that's how God saved them out of Egypt. So because of that, they were so distressed about losing their Egyptian firstborns that it was an opportunity. And, and obviously God showing them, I'm serious about this, let them go. And then they fled. So every year from that point on, in the month of Nisan, which is just the first month in the Jewish calendar, not, not the car, but the first month in the Jewish calendar, they would celebrate the Passover to remember God's miraculous protection and His delivering them out of the land of slavery into freedom. So all that harangue aside, that Passover meal, the main element was the lamb, the spotless lamb. But in no testimony from the four gospel accounts do you see them talk about an actual lamb that they ate of. All you see is the bread and the wine. Okay, so many commentators have argued about this, but it's my opinion that basically what Jesus was showing them was, you don't need a lamb for this meal because I am the Passover lamb. I am the lamb that will be slain. I am the meat that you'll partake of. My blood will be what washes you and saves you from your sin. It'll cover you. It'll cleanse you so that when the angel of death passes over, you'll be saved. You won't have to make payment for your own sins. That blood will be on you by faith, applied to your life, so that you will be able to pass through this life into the next with abundant life. So, they didn't have a lamb because Jesus was the Passover lamb. So, many... um, so tonight we're going to take of communion because he get, begins to teach about the first communion. We take the bread, symbolizing of the body of Christ that was given for us. And we take the fruit of the vine, the wine or the grape that has to be crushed, just like Jesus was crushed, so that the blood would be removed from him, so that we could have that applied to our lives and washing us of our sins, forgiveness completely, signifying that just like the Passover lamb, so verse 22 says, we're going to read it. Here's how we're going to do it tonight. We only got a couple of us. But uh, we're just going to take a, time, a little bit of time. I'm going to read this. I'm going to play a song that I heard earlier that made me think of, of uh, the Lord's Supper. And you guys can come up here as you want. Get, get the, blood, or the, the, the juice and the, and the cracker. Go back to your seat and uh, pray. Take of it. Just think about what God has done. And then uh, we'll listen to the song, and then they'll come out. Uh, The kids will probably take it too, whoever wants to. And then uh, we'll sing one last song, and that'll be it for this evening. But I always think it's neat when you're in Scripture and you see something that Jesus does, and especially because we do communion once a month, it's like, well, we can just do it like they did on Passover, at least where we're at in Scripture. So verse 22 says, As they were eating, Jesus took bread, he blessed and he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, Take Eat, this is my body. He just did it so simply. And then verse 23 says, Then he took the cup, and when he gave thanks, he gave it to them. They all drank from it, and he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, 
which is shed for many. Now verse 22 is interesting to me because Jesus took the bread, just like he took his life. He gave thanks for it, he blessed it, and then he allowed it to be broken. And then he gave it to them. That's what he did with his body. He allowed it to be broken. He gave it to us so that we could partake of the bread of life. In the same way that he took the cup of blood that God gave him and he gave thanks to it and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, the new promise, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He said, I won't drink of this this fruit of the vine until I drink it new at the basically at the 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 Lord's Supper the 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 bride's supper of the lamb kind of the celebration when he returns and so tonight we'll do this so like I said I'm going to put a